This next panel um, is on systemic approaches to race and prejudice, as we've called it, um, and it's a it's a wonderful group of people. Unfortunately, um, things being things, um, Larissa Baldwin's plane this morning was cancelled. It seems that all of the the speakers that we booked transport for, all of their planes were either delayed or cancelled, every single one. Um, <laughs> so, And my partner yesterday spent four hours at an airport as well with a cancelled plane, so that's uh, capitalism for you, I think. Um, anyway, so very sadly, Larissa Baldwin isn't able to join us, um, which, yeah, I am personally saddened by because I am such a fan of what she's doing with Seed. Um, but we have Lydia Thorpe on Skype from Melbourne with any luck um, with us very, very shortly. Um, So Lydia, um, many of you may know, um, is currently campaigning for the Greens for the seat of Northcote um, and is a... um, is an Indigenous woman with a, a background in, in local business and all sorts of things um, and will be a wonderful contributor. She is going to basically speak to us through Skype because she's in the middle of a campaign um, and we won't have much of a chance to speak back to her. Um, and then she's going to head off and keep campaigning. We also have Tim Lacerdo, um, who I'm sure many of you will, will know or know of, recently set up um, a... a tremendously exciting organisation, Democracy in Colour, um, which I'm sure he'll tell us all about. We have Rachel Jacobs from the New South Wales Greens and from uh, UW, Western Sydney University. I was about to say Macquarie. Western Sydney University, who is um, also an artist and an academic and and a dancer and all sorts of wonderful things and will speak to us about many issues. And Roseanne Burston, who also, I I suspect, needs no introduction for many of you, particularly those of you who've been involved in the party, has been the Communications Director for the Australian Greens for... um, coordinator for the Australian Greens for more years than most of us. Um, (laughs) Anyway, sorry, that was going somewhere terrible. Um, Roseanne has recently set up this um, fabulous organisation, Intertwine, and she's going to be telling us about that. It looks like we have Lydia on Skype. Lydia, can you hear us? I hope you can hear a little bit. Yeah, I can hear. Can you hear me? We can, perfectly. That's wonderful. So, without any further ado, given um, your busy schedule, thank you so much for taking the time to join us, um, and over to you. Thank you, and thanks, thanks for having me. Um, I think it's great that, you know, we, we have an opportunity to talk, to talk about these things that um, affect the things that we do every day. Um, but firstly, I'd like to... Um, it's hard paying my respects to country when I'm actually not um, there. But um, as a Gunai Gunichamara woman, um, you know, I'd like to pay my respects to country. Um, I've spent a lot of time not very far away from where you all are right now at the Aboriginal Tent Embassy. Um, so it's it's quite an honour to um, be, you know, be part of this conference today and um, to be the Greens candidate for the seat of Northcote. Um, In terms of um, my experience, I suppose, you know, um, with all of the systems that I've had to navigate in my life, you know, it's, it's, um, it's never been an easy system. I left school at 
the age of 14 um, because of a system that I, I didn't fit into and that was the education system um, at the time. And, you know, whilst there's um, been a lot of work done in this space, there's still a lot, lot, of, lot more work to do. And um, in those days when I was um, 14, there were only two Aboriginal kids at Fitzroy High and it was really, you know, it was difficult. So it wasn't a safe place and it wasn't just the kids that um, weren't making it safe, it was the, the teachers as well. So um, with that... Um, I, I got a better offer from my uncle Robbie Thorpe and started working at the Koori Information Centre in Gertrude Street, educating teachers and students about Aboriginal history and Aboriginal culture. So I've um, basically been doing that since since I was 14, and um, and along the way I got this degree of life, and I you know um, furthered my education. Um, as a result, but again, still experiencing, um, you know, discrimination and, and racism um, in every facet. Everywhere I've worked, everything I've done, I've experienced racism. And, um, you know, as a mother and a grandmother and a woman, it's, you know, we just have so many um, complexities on us to to get through in life. So you've you've really got to um, have thick skin and, and be tough. Um, and I've been very fortunate to uh, come from a very strong family of um, of women of make you know a very strong matriarchal line from the Gunditjmara people in the Western District of Victoria. So uh, having having you know the strength of my of my grandmothers and my mother has um, toughened me up to be the person that I am today and to deal with the racism that we're constantly, um, you know, that's constantly in front of us. So in the local government space, uh, my position was to work with 79 councils in Victoria and um, give people an opportunity to talk about why they can't work with Aboriginal people in their own communities. And, you know, that whilst there was um, some really difficult conversations and difficult situations, to give people an opportunity to just have a yarn about why they feel a particular way um, was, was really, um, you know, I felt really honoured, even though I, I copped so much racism and I had some very racist questions. Um, I felt honoured that people had the trust and faith in me to be so open um, rather than say nothing and rather than have that underlying racism that my people continually have to deal with. So, you know, rather than walking into a room and doing a presentation, I'd walk into the room and say, right, let's just forget about any PowerPoint. Let's sit, sit around the table and have a yarn about um, what's going on in this community. And um, I know that there's problems with the traditional owners in this area. So let's talk about that. How does that make you feel? You know, what do you think are the problems? And so I'd really stir the pot a little bit first and to bring it out. And I would get fired with so many questions because people's own ignorance um, and, and, you know, racism, literally, um, 
that had been hidden or talked about, you know, behind closed doors in their own environments. And a lot of healing came from those discussions and I'm still in contact with a lot of, of those people today because they they realised that they were racist and they realised that they were ignorant and they realised that to um, have an understanding of that, that they could make a difference by changing the way they they think and act towards Aboriginal people and their communities. So, um, you know, I think, I suppose it brings me to the, um, you know, the the big topic of of the day at the moment and that's changed the date. Since I've been, um, well, actually not since I've been door knocking and and been out there, I've been um, on this campaign before I was pre-selected, but, you know, knocking on people's doors and people realising that I'm the candidate and that, and that I'm the Aboriginal candidate, um, one of the main questions I get is, you know, why did, you know, the, the council of councillors have done the wrong thing in trying to change a date and trying to take Australia Day away from us. And so being, I mean, that, you know, it's just fantastic when I knock on a door and people want to talk about that and they're just so against it. So I just see that as a real opportunity to say, okay, well, let's talk about that. And as an Aboriginal woman, this is how it feels for me and this is how it's felt for me since I was a kid growing up and, um, you know, celebrating a day that brings so much hurt and pain into my people's hearts is really difficult and we only want a day that we can celebrate with everybody. We want to be part of what's going on in this country and we don't feel a part of it at the moment and my children don't feel a part of it. So to to really, you know, have a one-on-one yarn with people, um, every, every person that I spoke to um, whilst door knocking that was against changing the date actually changed their mind and said wow, that makes a lot of sense. Yes, we have to do that. Now I understand. So, you know, education is is the key and giving people an opportunity to be part of the discussion, I think, is so important. And the fact that, you know, our communities have been denied the education around the real history of this country has created the division that we're dealing with today. So, you know, an example of that is when I was um, going to primary school, I was being told that Captain Cook discovered Australia and how great of an explorer he was and uh, Angus Macmillan, who, you know, is responsible for murdering most of my clans in East Gippsland, what a wonderful explorer he was. Um, so to, you know, to go to school and hear that was was devastating for me because I knew the truth when I was nine and I, I didn't feel that that was right and went home and, and got my family up the next day and wore my Aboriginal flag and we re-educated that school and that system at the time. But it's sad to um, still be part of a system that denies the real history of this country and until we come to terms with the real history of this country we can never have any real healing um and you know the the Uluru statement has um been um canned by the by the the government of the day 
um, but one of the things, one of the good things that, that the Uluru Statement had in it was a treaty. And so I've been, you know, continuously on this campaign um, for a clan-based treaty, and that means that every clan in this country should have an opportunity to decide whether they want to participate in a treaty process or not. And that is in line with our human rights and um, our free, you know, our um, free informed prior consent that should be um, considered to be part of this, you know, important um, process. So in Victoria, um, treaties on the table, um, but unfortunately, part of that process. Um, hasn't been around free informed prior consent and it's it's taken away our self-determination as a people because, again, um, you know, this government here are deciding what's best for us and deciding who's best to make those decisions for us and they aren't, um, you know, that they haven't put any thought in, or maybe they have, um, on you know on on what clans are left in this state to be able to be part of those discussions, so that in itself has created so many divisions in our community, because it you know it's it's the hand-picked people um, that no one's ever going to be happy with. It's a it's a blatant denial of um, our clans' rights in this in this space, and. When you speak to people out in community, they, you know, that one of the things that I keep hearing is, oh, he's always fight. There's so much division within the Aboriginal community, and you wonder why. You know, it's it's all these um, policies and these um, instruments that keep dividing us as a people. And real self determination will ultimately give us the decision-making power to make good decisions that we know will work for all of us. We've never been able to do that. So I think a treaty, a proper treaty discussion will not only bring healing and peace for Aboriginal people in this country, but it'll bring healing and peace for everybody. And I think it's a really um, exciting time to um, be talking about that. I think... Uh, non-Aboriginal non people in this country need to start thinking about what a treaty means to them and what peace looks like to them in this country and the seriousness of the fact that, you know, we're the only Commonwealth country in the world that doesn't have a treaty with its first people. And I was talking to somebody today. I've just come from a funeral, by the way, um, as, as well as everything else that's going on. Um, and at the funeral I was told um, by, by a beautiful man, uh, Bob McDonald, a naturalist, an old Greens person, um, that John Batman um, didn't, didn't want to do a, a treaty with Aboriginal people here because we were classified as monkeys. And I thought that was an interesting comment because... Um, you know, it was a, there was a conversation about why New Zealand 
uh, went with a treaty and, and not Australia and, and that was the reasoning behind that from, from Batman at the time, um, which is interesting because, you know, I still, I still feel that, you know, we're not taken seriously. I still feel that... Um, that because of the lack of education on the the true history of this country, it's just creating so much division and so much hatred and so much racism that it's difficult to think about, um, you know, coming together. And I think if it's every if, if it's on everyone's, you know, if it's at the front of everyone's mind to um, bring healing and peace in our own country then there's so many beautiful spin-offs that can come from that and it's not just with the people but it's with the land and, you know, certainly for Aboriginal people, treaty isn't just about people, it's about our country and it's about caring for our country and our environment. So there's so many beautiful things that can come out of a treaty for this country um, that I think the more people that start talking about it and taking it more seriously and and um, working out how they can participate in this discussion, then I think, um, you know, that's going to go a long way. Um, as, you know, I, I suppose I just need to congratulate the councils that um, have taken the lead on these issues and, and stood up, and it's been the Greens councillors, which, you know, it's, it's really... Um, it's been a really brave move and, you know, there's been a lot of the women on these councils that have stood up and stood against um, a lot of racism that's occurred as a result of these decisions. I know Moreland Council had a, um, had a group of people bring in the coffin um, during their council meeting because they felt it was the, you know, Australia Day was dead and um, they wanted to... Um, exemplify that by by bringing in a coffin and and calling calling people racist for removing Australia Day um, and I've offered some offered up some healing around that for all of those greens councillors particularly who have to deal with the amount of racism that that's coming about um, I know myself you know receiving lots of hate mail um, lots of nasty inboxes, and it just it it doesn't um, it doesn't hurt me. It just makes me more determined to um, you know to to create environments for change and understanding, which is what we need. People are so uninformed about why this is important for this country. And the more, as I say, the more people that can get on board with this and get that message out there, the, the further we're going to go as a, as a country. And if I get into Parliament, you know, it's not going to be my only priority. There's many priorities. I think the first one should be the Great Forest National Park um, and ensuring that we protect, you know, that country and... And being out there a couple of weeks ago, I was just I was just devastated to, to see that in 2017 we're still cutting down old growth forests, which is 90 minutes out of um, my electorate. Um, so, 
yeah, we just need to um, keep on campaigning and if I get into Parliament, that would be my, my first priority and then straight after that would be to ensure that there are proper conversations around a treaty, um, a clan-based treaty and what that looks like for, you know, for um, not just Aboriginal people but non-Aboriginal people. And talking to a lot of non-Aboriginal people about this, they've learnt so much about the fact that we have so many, you know, clans left after colonisation and genocide and assimilation. We're still very strong out there and still very connected and, and still have so much knowledge to share about how we can protect country and, and you know, um, heal as a people. So when people feel that they can be part of that, it just it brings... You know, it brings healing in their heart as well and, and that they can feel comfortable in being part of that country and, and have that sense of belonging, um, which I think is a really important part of this process. Um, well, I think that's about it. I'm, I have no idea what amount of time I've um, used already. I, I'm it's only looking at a, a door. Um, so I'm not sure if anybody has any questions. I'm happy to field anything, any any questions. So Uncle Les from the uh, from the tent embassy and the whole room. I don't know if you heard that, Lydia. Wishing you very well um, for the campaign, and thank you for your time. Uh, I, I, I heard your voice, and I I knew exactly who it was. So thank you, Uncle Les. I really value. Um, your support and um, yeah, it's a it's a rough rough road at the moment, but we're getting through it and you know knocking on all these doors and being out there with um, with community. There's so much support and people are sick of seeing our country destroyed and seeing you know these old parties continually doing the wrong thing by by communities and country. That it's time for change and. You know, for for other Aboriginal people that um, might be in the room, you know, it's we stand up for our people and we stand up for our communities, but we also need to think about, you know, getting into this space because we can also make a big difference. Um, you know, being in a in a party like the Greens, I think, um, you know, I've been so heartened by the amount of support that I've received by the Greens and. Um, yeah, it's amazing and, and all of, obviously, you know, the, the values of the Greens are values of, of our own and um, so thank you for having me and um, enjoy the rest of your conference. I wish I was there. I wish I was sitting over at the embassy as well. Um, but as soon as um, we get this election over and done with, I'll be able to get out a little bit more. But at the moment, I'm in lockdown in, in Northgate and um, getting as many people over the line as we can. Thank you so much. <laughs> Wonderful. Thank you. So we'll move right along to um, Tim Lacerdo. Um, Tim is the founder and national director of Democracy in Colour. He works at United Voice as a senior organiser Previously, Tim was the head of campaigns at Oak Tree, has been an advisor to two Green Senators, directed national campaigns for an advocacy organisation in India, and much, much more. Thank you for joining us, Tim. 
Uh, so before I begin, I'd just like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the land on which we're on at the moment, the Ngunnawal people. I'd like to uh, pay my respects to elders past, present and emerging and pay my respects to any Indigenous people who are with us in the room. We're on stolen land and sovereignty was never ceded and I think it's uh, particularly poignant to... Uh, when we're talking on a panel about structural racism and systemic approaches to racism, uh, that it's First Nations people who are at the forefront of racism in this country uh, and that there's no such thing as racial justice without uh, centering the leadership and vision and experiences of First Nations people. And even more broadly about the theme of this conference around you know, how are we shaping Greens politics for the future that meets the challenges of the future? Uh, I think, you know, we'd, we'd all be on the same page that there's no future worth fighting for unless the vision we're working towards and the way we get there supports the self-determination and sovereignty of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. I'd just like to acknowledge uh, as well the ongoing and historical colonial violence that happens to this day that a number of us, myself including, are beneficiaries of. Uh, it's violence that happens to this day. There have been 400, more than 400 black deaths in custody since the 1991 uh, Royal Commission into Aboriginal deaths in custody handed down its report. Uh, most of the implementations, recommendations of the report haven't been implemented. There have been uh, this country is the highest number of Indigenous people incarcerated on the planet. Uh, Indigenous people have a life expectancy 10 years less than the average. And Indigenous kids are 10 times more likely to be taken into care. These things are not an accident. It didn't happen um, by accident. It's intentional. It's a, 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 a result of a construct and a system that treats black lives and First Nations lives as if they're worth less. My name is Tim, and I work at Democracy in Colour. Democracy in Colour is Australia's first national racial justice advocacy organisation led by people of colour. Uh, we do three broad things. So the first thing we do is we run campaigns to tackle structural racism. The second thing we do is we hold political, corporate and cultural leaders to account on the things they say and do around race. And the third thing we do is we build a political constituency around communities of colour. We do leadership development, capacity building and training work to build the political power and strength of people of colour. Before I get too much into that, I just want to share a little bit of a story as to how I got to be here, both literally and metaphorically, uh, how I came to be doing this work. Uh, my mother is Chinese, my dad is Italian, and I was born in Brisbane. So the story of my life is the quintessential example of Australian, quote-unquote, multiculturalism. I grew up hearing the stories of my parents and the racism they experienced. When my dad was growing up in Sydney, uh, it was fashionable to bully Italians. He got bullied at school because of the type of food he ate, because his mum didn't speak English. I grew up hearing uh, the stories uh, my mum would tell me about the racism she experienced. I saw her get verbal abused in public because of the colour of her skin, uh, uh, racially discriminated against because of her accent, the way she spoke English and all the stereotypes that come with being Chinese. And I experienced it myself growing up. Uh, uh, my first name became Chink, go back to where you came from, became the weekly mantra of the playground. Uh, uh, fruit was thrown at me from passing by cars. My house was egged a couple of times and there'd be this, you know, and for any person of colour in the room, uh, this would resonate, there'd be this, this 
this this awe every time you open your mouth and you can speak and semi-coherently and string together sentences as if that right shouldn't be yours. Uh, and again, every person of colour can probably resonate with this, the, the inevitable question you're asked when you meet someone for the first time, uh, where, are you, where are you from? And when I say, you know, Brisbane, the inevitable reply is, no, where are you really from? As if someone, again, with my skin colour couldn't possibly have been born in sunny Queensland. And so it became quite evident to me uh, early on that people were prepared to treat me differently based off the colour of my skin. And as I grew up and went through high school, I started to realise that, you know, injustice tends to manifest itself in multiple forms. I had a friend who he felt he couldn't be himself because he liked other guys. I had a friend, she wrestled with her reflection every time she stared into the mirror because what she saw back didn't reflect society's expectations of women. And so I think I came to realise, and I think it's pretty clear to a lot of us, that uh, most of us know what it's like to be alone. I think most of us know what it's like to have your back against the world and feel like the whole world's against you. And I think most of us have that shared experience, irrespective of the colour of your skin, your gender, your sexuality. I think the vast majority of us have that experience because it's a condition of living in this system we live in. It's a condition of living in our society, a white settler, a predatory capitalist uh, system and society. Uh, and I want to spend a little bit of time just interrogating that because I think this is core to all of the struggles that we deal with. I believe that we live in a system of concentrated power that prioritises profit over everything, prioritises profit and growth over life itself. Uh, this is a system that requires the global economy to grow by more than 3% every year, the minimum necessary for large firms to make aggregate profits. That means that we need to be producing more than $2 trillion worth of wealth every year. And every 20 years, it means that the size of the global economy needs to, to double. Uh, and we're told from birth that this is a good thing, that growth, that profit uh, is essential to building prosperous communities, harmonious communities, that it's essential to dealing with inequality and extreme poverty. And so we follow this narrative, we follow this story with, that we're drip-fed from birth. Uh, and since 1980, the global economy has grown by more than 380%. Also since 1980, there have been an, an additional 1.1 billion people thrown into extreme poverty living under $5 a day. Of all of the income generated by global GDP growth uh, from 1999 to 2008, the poorest 60% have gotten just 5% of that income produced over nine years. The richest 40% got 95%, and obviously that includes almost everyone, probably everyone in this room. Over the same time period, eight billionaires have accumulated the same wealth as half the world, eight men have accumulated the same wealth as 3.6 billion people. Since 1980, global material extraction and consumption has increased by 94% or so uh, over that time period. We're now overshooting our planet's biocapacity by more than 50%. We're driving uh, extinction levels to a height not seen in 66 million years. And of course, we're facilitating uh, a climate catastrophe and we're heading into three, four, potentially more degrees of warming warming that will radically impact our way of life, but it presents an existential threat to people much less fortunate and privileged than us, especially some of our closest neighbours in the Pacific. And let's be clear, this system is working, right? It's working perfectly, but it was never designed 
to work for you or to work for me. And here's the kicker. This is a system that creates the fertile conditions for merchants of fear, for savvy political operatives and opportunists to weaponize our differences, to participate in the unconscionable manipulation of people looking for answers. Right now, there are thousands, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, millions of everyday folks who are feeling the very real and visceral effects of neoliberalism. They're seeing diminishing economic prospects for themselves and their families, uh, and they're seeing... uh, 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 they're living paycheck to paycheck and they're looking for answers and rightly so. And we live in a, in a political space where the left has fundamentally abrogated uh, uh, its responsibility and its onus to create a vision for what our future could look like. And politics abhors a vacuum. And so what it's done is it's created a space for very savvy and very intelligent and strategic political operatives on the far right to come in and weaponize our differences, to, to tell people looking for answers that the answer to their systemic ills is the neighbor that doesn't look like them, that believes in a different God, who has different cultural practices. And what this looks like in Australia is that inequality is at 76-year highs. Uh, the top 1% in this country own more wealth than the bottom 70%. 40% of Australians are in insecure work. Um, youth unemployment is in double digits. Uh, you know, profit growth is the strongest it's been in 15 years. This year, corporate profits went up 15, 40%. Uh, and at the same time, our government facilitated an attack on the weekend rates of the poorest 700,000 workers, some of the poorest uh, workers in this country, in hospitality, in retail, and fast food. So I think it's pretty clear to anybody who, who's observing politics, and even those who are completely turned off by it, that our political class, our political establishment, has everything except their interests, our interests at heart. And it creates the space for groups like One Nation, people like Cory Bernardi and George Christensen and your Peter Duttons, your UPFs, your extreme far-right groups. It creates a space for those folks to come in and whilst people who are experiencing the pinch from neoliberalism might not agree with all of the policies that have been proposed by groups like UPF and and One Nation, at least these groups recognise the pain that they're in. On the flip side, you've got the political establishment on the left that ironically has become some of the biggest proponents, the biggest defenders of the establishment. You look at the last presidential election in the US where you've got the Democratic um, nominee and one of her major uh, campaign slogans was America is already great. And she was telling that to a country where half of American families wouldn't be able to afford a $400 bill without going into debt. That's the same here. We've got inequality at 76-year highs. We've got establishment politicians on both sides of the aisle who refuse to acknowledge the structural and systemic causes of that, who refuse to speak about that, who pretend that tweaking around the edges is all that we need to deal with the serious issues we're, we're facing. And we all know it's a lie, including them. And when people speak the truth around something that's told, that, that everybody else is lying about, I think that provides a lot of leeway um, to those folks and it provides a lot of scope for them to, to, to talk about other issues um, that they might not otherwise agree with. And so whilst you're here, people like Pauline Hansen uh, rail against you know, the Sudanese, against the African diaspora, against Muslims, you'll never hear them talk about the 48 
Australian millionaires who paid no tax in 2015. You'll never hear them talk about the 678, Australia, some of Australia's largest companies, 678 companies who paid no tax in 2015. And you won't hear them talk about that because uh, despite the rhetoric that people like Pauline Hanson put out, they don't care about everyday folks. They only care about their own power and increasing it through whatever means necessary, even if that means breaking communities and even if that means exploiting our fear. And let's be clear, their power is contingent on chronic fear. That's how they build their power. That's how they gain electorally. That's how they push through their, their policy reforms. And I think we're all on the same page that, that politics that's contingent on chronic fear is deeply wrong. It's quite evil. And that's because like, fear has never put a roof over anybody's head, will never create a job, it will never put a kid through school. All it does is break our communities, all it does is convince us and throw up smoke screens to convince us to point the finger of blame at each other instead of the rules. And so people like Pauline Hanson, people and white nationalist friends, these people are core defenders and core proponents of the status quo, irrespective of what they say Neoliberalism and the status quo rely on people like Pauline Hanson to sow the seeds of division and doubt so that we're focused on shouting at each other and convincing each other that we can only, we can only focus on race or we can only focus on class or we can only focus on sexuality or gender instead of seeing how the broader system we live in is the root of all of the struggles we deal with, that the person who holds my chains also holds yours, holds ours, that there is one system that holds our collective chains and binds us, and it's the multinational megacorporations, it's the billionaire oligarchs who control them, it's the vested interests they've bought out, and it's the politicians they have on speed dial. So to wrap up, I think in terms of how we fight back against this. I think it's critical that we do our job as a progressive movement and that we paint a picture of what it looks like to live in a society that is just, that is fair, that revolves around the prioritisation of human potential instead of profit. A society where the inherent worth and dignity of everyone is recognised, irrespective of your class, your ethnicity, your sexuality, your gender, your able-bodiedness. Uh, a society where everyone has the potential to realise their full potential and stop fighting fires and stop you know, moving from one battle to the next but start to stop being so reactionary and start to paint a picture of what, what is our vision. And if we don't do that, then we create this vacuum for our opponents on the far right to come in and speak about their vision for this country, a vision that recognises the flaws of our current system but has points, put, uh, points the finger at very different, um, very, very different people. Uh, I think it's essential that we come together, that we tell the story of what uh, um, a successful Australia looks like, what does a, a, a society where justice is real look like, that we do that. We do work to build a broad-based movement, is the second thing, a movement where we see and highlight and constantly reiterate the connections between all of our different struggles and we stop acting 
in isolation and that we stop uh, um, uh, pretending that our issue is the most important, whatever it is, whether it's climate, the environment, whether it's workers' rights, whether it's gender, whether it's sexuality, all of these things have the same stem. We need to build a movement that recognises and, and tells that story, and we need to do organising work. We need to get out of, of, of we need to you know get mobilised at conferences like these, but then we need to get out. And we need to get into communities um, where people don't necessarily agree with us, and we need to do the the hard work of uh, talking to them, of hearing and listening to their concerns, and speaking a narrative that brings it back down to like at the end of the day there is much less that divides me or divides a person of colour to a white working class person than there is that divides me to a billionaire in this country that has gamed the system, that games the rules and, and, and sees their profits skyrocket into the stratosphere at the perpetual expense of the opportunity and dignity of everyone else. If we can start to tell that story and we can start to paint a picture of what does you know, an Australia that is as beautiful as we can imagine, what does that look like? One where we're not just automatons, you know, machines and cogs, where we're more than our capacity to, to produce shit and consume shit and extract more shit. If we can tell that story, if we can build a broad-based movement, then I think we might have a sliver of a chance at winning. Thanks, folks. Thanks so much, Tim. What a great response to the provocation. Really excellent. Um, Rachel Jacobs. Uh, Dr. Rachel, Rachel Jacobs is a lecturer in creative arts education at Western Sydney University. Rachel is a community activist, a freelance writer, a practicing dancer, and choreographer. She is also an organizing committee member of the community group Teachers for Refugees and runs her own intercultural dance company. Really looking forward to it. Thanks. Thank you. I, um, I acknowledge the traditional owners, the Ngunnawal people. I acknowledge um, their elders past, present, emerging. This was, is, always will be Aboriginal land. Um, this land was never ceded. I also acknowledge um, any Indigenous people here in the room. I acknowledge Lydia, who spoke so inspirationally, giving us a framing for the exact kind of change that we're here to talk about. Um, I'm going to start in this. Hello, everyone. Hello. Are we having a good time? <laughs> Serious issues on the table. I might start by telling some of my stories, which are remarkably similar to Tim's, because the story of immigration, the story of people of colour in this country, we're, you know, we've all come from somewhere and we're, we're bound together by the common experience of constantly being asked where you're from. Oh, my fucking God. <laughs> you know, incidentally... I get asked where I'm from, um, it, I, I count the days. So, so usually I get up to about three days. I'm like, ah, you, you just broke it. I'd gone three days and someone asked me, you broke it. Um, and I get asked in all kinds of spaces. Do you know what I get, get asked where I'm from really often? RAC, the Refugee Action Collective. I've actually stopped going. As mentioned in my, um, my bio, I'm hugely active in refugee space. Everyone's like, why aren't you at RAC? I'm like, because I get othered there all the time. I'll talk a little bit about why in my speech, but first a little bit of framing. So my parents um, came to Australia from India in the 1960s. They were the first wave of migrants to come after the white Australia policy was kicked off. And hence, everything followed. My, my dad talks about being at work and people saying to him that he was one of the first black people they'd ever met 
they never met a non-white person. And so everything follows along. My brother and I, we were the first non-white children, you know, to be in school. But we, to us, we lived a pretty normal life. To, to my brother and I, we looked at each other, we were just kids. We lived the rough and tumble life. We were falling off bikes. We were in scraps. We were, we were, um, we were pretty feral kids, actually. Yeah, we were pretty feral kids, as kids are. So one day when I came home, covered in scratches, bleeding, flesh showing. And my mum said, what happened to you? I'd come home from school. What happened to you? I couldn't tell her. I couldn't tell her that my friends had pushed me to the ground and beat me and scratched my skin because they decided that she was one of the good ones, one of the good migrants. And we're going to scratch that black skin off her. Years later, when I decided as an adult I wanted to enter politics and um, I entered a conversation with, you know, progressive politics always. I entered a conversation and a group of people were saying to me, why are communities of colour so conservative? And they put a whole lot of things on me. They said conservative, you know, towards women, towards queer issues. Why um, are they like this? And they kept going at me and attacking me and basically wanting me to renounce my culture and my Indian heritage, and I was back on the floor with the skin being torn off me. This is one of my introduction to politics. Just recently, I was, um, and I'm talking a couple of months ago now, I was in a, um, I was with, having drinks with a group of friends from the Greens, including two members of parliament, and it was the 70th anniversary of Indian partition. And I was um, telling a story um, about partition and, you know, what it was like for, for people in, you know, my family and my generation. And, and I was talked over the entire time by a room full of white people who kept saying to me, but you, have you read this book? Have, have you read this book? And I said, well, what it was like for my family. But have you read this book? This was constant. And I left in tears. I left that space in tears. I'm not telling you this story because I want to try and elicit, you know, some sympathy for you or anything like that, but I'm telling you these stories to tell you that structural racism isn't something that happens out there. It isn't something that happens in the Liberal Party and the Coalition and One Nation or something that just happens in the country or something that just happens in those bad places. In fact, I will tell you that in some ways, progressive spaces are a bit more dangerous because people think they know. We think they, we know about the crisis with Rohingyans. We think we know about what it's like to be Hazara. And we let that knowledge sometimes take over the personal stories, which we need to tell personal stories in order to heal, in order to share that experience one-on-one. -on -one. But I'm afraid we just kept getting talked over. For me, I've witnessed the environmental movement and green politics in Australia often being quite an exclusive space, characterised by whiteness, leaving people of colour feeling really alienated in that space. The problem is exacerbated for women because there's a dominance of white feminism in progressive politics which allows white voices to drown out minority issues and perspectives. The issue of white feminism tears at me absolutely tears at me because I grew up as a feminist knowing you don't throw other women under a bus. It's all of us or it's none of us, right? 
and yet I experience white feminism over and over again. Sometimes I come in from one of those where are you from conversations, I just want to vent or I just want to tell someone or I just want to point something out and I have my conversation. And a white woman will cut in and say, yes, it's like this issue with being a woman. I'm like, that is most definitely an issue. I'm not taking that away, but it is not the same. Um, and, and you get cut off over and over again. I experience this, I experience this constantly. Um, and it's exclusive and it's difficult for me because I want to be there for my sisters. But who's there for me? One of the things that I also find is that there's a constant relegation of um, race issues. I'm in the Greens, as you know. We're constantly focused on the big issues because we have to be. We have to stop Adani. We have to save the reef. We have to end neoliberal capitalism. There's always something to fight for, but it seems when my issue comes up, it's always, there's always something to fight for first before we get our turn. And when you bring it up, there's a raft of excuses that come around. I was in an amazing um, Q&A session uh, with my dear friend Christine Milne uh, when she was leader of the Greens, and um, this was when I was a member in Brisbane. Jonathan Sree local councillor, some people are nodding who have heard of, Jonathan Street, also my cousin, by marriage, to make that very clear. There's my husband sitting down the back, um, and um, it's actually Andrew's cousin, but yeah, in, yeah I know, I know, interesting, right. Um, but um, Jonathan Street, my cousin, asked a question of Christine and says, I'm really enjoying my time in the Greens, it's inspiring, it's incredible, um, we're making change, but I find, found this the whitest space I've ever been a part of. What can we do? And Christine answered it as well as she could and then the hands went up around the room and, they, and people said, and what about representation of queer people? What about representation of colour? I get it. I get it. I'm at all of those forums fighting for all of those things, but can we just talk about this one once? That's how I feel. That Every time you bring it up, there's always something going, yes, and this level of, and this piece of discrimination, absolutely. Or someone saying, I know how you feel because my great grandparents were Irish. Different thing. Meanwhile, we've got so long, you know, meanwhile, we're, while we're fighting all those big things, we have so far to go on things like the close the gap targets. Racism in Australia is on, the, uh, is on the rise. I can tell you that from personal experience. We have no coherent strategy to take on Pauline Hanson and other races, racists and the rise of the far right. What I am concerned about is what we see on an international stage, and I'm not actually going to talk about Trump now. Everyone looks to Sanders and Corbyn seeing signs that the new mass movement against capitalism is coming. But... These guys are deliberately and repeatedly relegating issues that affect both women, of, women and people of colour. Everything they say is framed around making the lives of the working class better. This approach ignores the structural issues facing people of colour, particularly women. It incorrectly assumes that the answer is wealth. As long as progressive politics seems dominated by old white men, women of colour, like me, will continue to be left behind. And I'll give you an example for constantly, you know, and, you know, fighting for feminist issues, we talk about equal pay. Women of colour are so disadvantaged because of racism, they often don't get jobs. 
and people of colour are so disadvantaged in this regard. I have friends who change their names on job applications, who Ramon becomes Raymond. I have a friend of mine who's dropped one letter from his name, his name's Jose, he's Joe on a job application, to watch the, the, the offers of interviews flood in. You know, Sama becomes Sam. This is not, these aren't isolated incidents. In fact, in communities of colour, we just kind of know to do that. That's just something that we know how to do. So when I see these new leaders who are supposed to usher in this worldwide wave of radical politics, I get upset when they think it's okay to leave me and my family behind. If we can't do it all, if we can't smash the patriarchy, save the environment and fight racism at the same time, we're doing it all wrong. And we'll continue to repeat the mistakes of the past. It's all of us or none of us. It's not all doom and gloom. Those of you who know me know I like to end on a positive. And sometimes we get things right. And here's a few examples that inspire me from my own life. It was so inspiring um, in, to see in Victoria, but Lydia and Huang announced as candidates in the same week. Go Victorian Greens. For those who didn't know, I'm running for the New South Wales Senate pre-selection. Maureen Faruqi is also running. That wasn't a shameless plug, by the way. There's a point. Maureen Faruqi is also running. Uh, but do you know, a number of people said, have said to me, now that Maureen's running, we have a woman of colour, will you still run too? You know, we can have more than one. It's not a museum, by the way. Um, I'm a massive fan of Sam Ratner for, um, from the Victorian, the, the Victoria, leading the Victorian Greens. Anyone a fan of Sam here? She's absolutely, yay, she's absolutely amazing. Um, she is an academic doctor like myself. She is a woman of the subcontinent like myself. She's, you know, committed refugee activist like myself. She's like me, but a million times better. I absolutely love her. Um, and while we're on the topic of um, Victorian Greens, Alex, Alex Batal has been um, woman of the subcontinent, you know, a real tra trailblazer. Jenny Leong, my local member, is the high, has the highest primary vote of any Green. Proud woman of colour. However, all of these changes are recent. All of these um, you know, sparks of inspiration are quite new to us. And it's not indicative that all the issues I'm, you know, I mentioned before don't apply. I also want to recognise that all those women I've mentioned before, that their job is that much harder. We must recognise that. For example, you know, I've been, the, I've been a federal candidate. You don't just get called a bitch on the internet. You get called that ugly black bitch. And then we say, why don't more women of colour want to get involved in politics? Rachel, tell us why. At the moment, I feel like the left is waist deep in a conversation if capitalism is the central issue and if joy, destroying capitalism is the silver bullet. Tim certainly highlighted some very, very important structural issues that have left, left us finding a common enemy, the other. But for me, it's only one piece of the puzzle. To see that as a whole piece of the puzzle denies a lot of things. It denies that we are currently on stolen land. This country is founded on genocide. Further to that, around the world, white people invaded lands, enslaved people of colour, destroyed their culture and way of life and sentenced them to, in, to an eternity as debt slaves. And that denies that white privilege is a thing and it needs to be dismantled.
Can I finish with one very important thing? Can I thank you all sincerely for coming to this session? Because I've been giving this speech for 35 years, usually to an empty room. The room is empty, no longer. Still not as many people as we would like, but, um, but, but thank you from the bottom of my heart for being here. Barnaby Joyce has been ruled disqualified. Sorry, I was checking very quickly because it popped up <laughs> on my set. Um, Fiona Nash has been ruled disqualified. Wow. Canavan stays. Our two are gone, I'm afraid. So Scott had to... I saw Scott walk out because it presumably was being told and also doing media, and unfortunately Larissa's also been ruled disqualified. And Xenophon? Yeah. Uh, Xenophon stays. Um, Xenophon stays. Canavan stays. Yeah. Nash... Malcolm Roberts is gone. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> so there's some there's some good news and some bad news there is thank you so much rachel what a wonderful speech and what a wonderful again provocation um yeah one of the things that i was thinking in in both the context of of your stories and Tim's stories and of introducing Roseanne now is Roseanne and I have had this conversation a number of times about being white passing as Jews who completely, look, there's, there's no reason for anyone to suspect that both my parents are refugees, that my grandparents are Holocaust survivors and that I personally have been the butt of racism. I have had people call me a dirty Jew, a stinking Jew. But it's nothing compared to what you have experienced. And there's a, there's a tremendous difference there. Um, and there's, a, there's an interesting tension there in this question of being white passing. I've never had to change my name. I've never had to pretend I'm something other than who I am. I've never had other people challenge me for who I am. And I think that's something that a lot of us really can think about and you've challenged us to think very deeply about. So thank you very much. Roseanne Burston is a Jewish queer communicator and campaigner with Asperger's and ADHD. They were National Communications Coordinator of the Australian Greens from 2013 to 2017 and have written for Fairfax, Amnesty International, Greenpeace and the International Federation of Journalists and, and, is, the found, and is the founder of Intertwine. Thank you very much. Looking forward to it. Thank you. Um, I want to start by also acknowledging the Ngunnawal people, their elders past, present and emerging, and um, that their clans maintain connections to country and that sovereignty was never ceded. I'd also like to acknowledge the privileges that I enjoy as a descendant of refugees who settled on this stolen land, and that I and all of us benefit from continuing settler colonialism. I'd also like to thank Tim and Rachel for sharing your stories with us. As Tim says, um, I've got passing privilege. Um, I'm going to ask to move to the next. To, I've got one, really only one slide that needs to be shown, and that's the next one. Um, I I'm talking here about privilege and marginalisation or oppression. The aspects of our privilege and our marginalisation are, are axes. Some of them are more oppressed in our societies than others. And as Tim's kind of just mentioned, being of colour is one of the aspects in our society that is constantly visible. It's on you at all times. Others of us get to pass. The intersections of those privileges and oppressions are part of what make up our complex and interacting identities. It's not a 
doubling. It's a layering, and it's an exponential layering. I'm standing here as a person who is white passing, straight passing, neurotypical passing. You can't tell, looking at me, that I identify as gender fluid. You can't tell, looking at me, that I'm Jewish. You can't tell, well, some of you can, the Jews can, usually. <laughs> you can't tell, looking at me, that I've got ADHD, and you can't tell, looking at me, that I've got ASD. You can't tell, looking at me, any of that. Those experiences, when you're looking at this little thing here, the big horizontal line there is, above that is your privileges, and below that is your oppressions, okay? Some of you are going to say, oh, yeah, you know, I grew up poor. Working classes are definitely a thing that's on the oppression side of it. This is this thing that we constantly talk about when we talk about, you know, old white straight men. That's all on the privileged line. But an old white straight man who's working class and disabled still has oppressions. The layers of that is what's important here. And I'm going to say intersectional is not my word. I'm going to acknowledge that I'm an inheritor of a term that was brought up by Kimberly Crenshaw, who is a black woman and an African-American woman. One of the things that she's acknowledging there is that these layers of sexism and racism have this exponential reaction. Um, the oppression that we then experience is structural. And I kind of feel like I almost owe Rachel an apology here because, you know, you're saying, you know, and then the, then the queers get up and they say, yeah, us too, and then the, you know, disabled people get up and they say, us too. I, I, I'll take that, but also, if you're black and queer and disabled, you're stuffed, right? So the layers get in there. Um, women of colour experience both racism and sexism. Of 25,000 abusive tweets tracked by the New Statesman more in, in, in an experiment in the UK, more than half of them, think about that, 12.5 thousand of the tweets, were directed at Diane Abbott, the black female MP. This is not just a little doubling. This is an exponential experience. Abuse directed at Indigenous women is likely to be racialised and sexualised. Queer refugees are at greater risk on Manus and Nauru, where homosexuality was illegal until only last year. There is an, um, an email that went out only this week from um, Out, where a woman who's a lesbian refugee from Tunisia says that her translator was homophobic and was mistranslating her to the intake workers in Germany, and therefore that her application for refugee status was denied. This is not a simple doubling. This is an exponential layering. When compared with non-Indigenous people, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people had significantly higher crude rates of physical disability in Australia, almost 15% compared to 11%. Psychosocial disability, 6.6% compared to 3.8. Intellectual disability, 5.9% compared to 2.5. And higher rates of head injury, stroke and acquired brain injury, double that of non-Indigenous people in this country. These are, this is from the ABS. Again, this is not a doubling. This is exponential. Part of my Judaism very much informs my ethics. We were talking this morning about Indigenous ethics. My Judaism informs my ethics, and one of the quotes that we often get from Hillel and then redone in other ways is, if not me, who? If not now, when? My personal experience of the rise of the right right now is that everything is connected. I'm queer, but I'm married to a man 
I think he identifies as a man most days. Um, he's queer as well. He's slept with men and he's slept with trans people and so have I. Um, and so the marriage equality debate still affects us. So I'm running around as an ally and as a Green, wearing my badge, sticking my stickers on the bus stop. The sticker I stick, stuck on the bus stop in my right-wing voting area, because I live in Victoria in Templestowe in um, Matthew Guy's seat, the Liberal leader, um, was scrawled on with a swastika. Because the intersections and interconnections between queer oppression and racial purity continue to be relevant. The effect is to police my comfort as a Jew in my own neighbourhood. My daughter scrawled some beautiful things on, in chalk saying, vote yes for marriage equality, and someone in our little block of eight complained to the body corporate. We are being policed at all times. The attacks rise with international events. We've achieved our marvellous borderless world, but it's not working in our favour. The attacks against those of us who pass isn't negligible, though. There's been an interesting study um, that per capita, the raw number, I'm not talking raw numbers here, I'm talking per capita, that attacks against Jews continue to actually occur significantly more frequently than attacks against Muslims, and that counts as in Australia as well, per capita. Um, the evidence produced through police reports on hate, hate crimes and studies by anti-hate organisations show that in North America, Europe and Australia, the most frequent targets of abuse and violence on account of religious affiliation continue to be Jews. So that's from Julie Nathan. Um, I've forgotten which organisation she's with, I apologise. Um, in the year to September 2016, there was a 10% increase in anti-Semitic violence in Australia. And surprise, almost all of the assailants were male. Everything's connected. We know that men who commit domestic violence are more likely to go on to commit public violence. Everything is connected. We therefore also know that those people are more likely to commit racist violence. We can't stand by. Another Jewish phrase that informs where I am working with this is that it's not your job to complete the task, but nor are you free to desist from it. This is a quote from Rabbi Tarfon. And it says to me that my privileges mean that I get to pass in these worlds and I get to stand up and I get to stand here and say these things all the time. I want you to think about that chart and where your privileges are and what that allows you to do. Where are you able to speak out where we might not be able to speak out? Where are you able to act where we cannot act? There are more of us when you count the queers and the women of colour and the black fellas and the disabled people and the mentally diverse. There are more of us than there are of them. Why are we not working together? We need solidarity. We need to learn to be excellent allies. We need to step back and speak last and let the people who have more challenges in this society speak before us. We need to acknowledge our privileges and we need to call each other in when we make mistakes and not call each other out unless solidarity requires it so that people are safe. But we need compassion for each other as we stumble towards solutions. There is too much lateral violence. There are anti-Semitic attacks by, from the Muslim community and from African assailants in the list of anti-Semitic attacks we were talking about and we all know that there are Jewish anti-Islamophobic attacks. You know, it, it's terrible stuff. We have 
homophobia in our communities of colour. We have racism in our community, in our queer communities. It has to stop. Intertwine is my little organisation that I'm trying to start. Um, we've had some co-creation sessions and we've talked about um, six different areas where we think that progressive organisations can do better. We've come up with a charter for employment, governance, events, marketing, member relations and building and amenities if your organisation is big enough to own a building or have an influence on how that building is run. Um, and we want, you, we want people who run those organisations and you in the Greens. Like, this is not um, a theoretical thing I'm talking about here. We in the Greens don't do this well enough either. We have meetings in inaccessible buildings. We don't think about having quiet spaces or prayer rooms in our conferences. We don't have proactive speaker lists and make sure that people of colour can speak first. We don't listen. We don't do the things that we need to do to address prejudice in a systemic and structural way. We ask individuals to do the work as if this is some you know, meditation or mindfulness that will somehow magically solve the racism and discrimination that we experience. We need to go beyond anti-discrimination and towards proactive change to welcome others. I want to finish by echoing Tim's call to community. Together we are magnificent, creative and connected and we can move mountains. Join us. What a fantastic array of speakers. Um, thank you so much, Roseanne and, and Tim and Rachel and Lydia. Um, I'm sure there are questions in the room. <laughs> yeah. yeah, thank you for the question. So first of all, yes, we, we call it Oppression Olympics. Um, basically people trying to, you know, be more oppressed than other people as if it's fun because they don't really experience oppression and so they don't understand. Um, we, the, the practical advice is check your privilege. The practical advice is look at that list and seriously think, am I, as a vegetarian, more oppressed than someone who's having their skin scratched off by their friends? I'm sorry, it just... I don't, you know, and I think the answer is pretty obvious when you ask it like that, you know? Um, on that list, parent and childlessness are on an axis. But I think when you think about it and check your privilege, it's pretty clear, yeah, it's hard being infertile and wandering around and looking at people with kids, but people don't walk up to you in the supermarket and harass you for being childless. People don't walk up to you in an airport and punch you for being childless. I think checking your privilege is what we need to do. But I'm also going to not speak for you and throw to you and ask, what do you, what do you think the practical responses are? Thanks, um, Rosanna. I, I agree. And that's, an ex that's such a good question. I think a lot of it stems from guilt, that a lot of us do have um, guilt over our privilege. And I just made um, a speech as a woman of colour who speaks with an Australian accent whose first language was English. I can't claim to have had the same experiences, and I apologise if, um, you know, if, if I did. Um, and I think um, it goes back to um, what I was saying about going to Rack. By the way, it, there, it, 
RAC is full of extraordinary people who do amazing things. Can I make that very clear, that RAC is um, the Refugee Action Collective, is absolutely amazing. When I get othered when I go there, I think it's people's guilt reflex um, kicking in, saying, I'm trying so hard to change this world, and I have all this privilege, I can't discard. So here are some ways that I can do it. I'll throw down my cards. Vegetarian, no car, bike instead. Lost my helmet. Whatever. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. Um, but I, I think there's that element of guilt. So if we can turn that guilt around to go, all right, let's turn that around. I've got some privilege. So I'll sit here and today I'm going to listen. Today my role is listening to other people's stories. Or today my role is to let other people speak. Or today my role is not to nominate. Or today, my role is to get behind somebody else. Or then that's um, yeah, that's that's my version. Yeah, and that's something that I I will take on board and try to do as well in my in my own personal life. I work at Western Sydney University, um, so I've just talked to again about being a woman of colour. I teach entire classes full of women who wear headscarves who experience something day to day, hour to hour that I will never experience in my life. I also I want to particularly open the floor to Uncle Les and Auntie Mary. Uh, if you have anything further to add, um, please please do. I'm conscious that we did thankfully have Lydia on Skype. We were supposed to have Larissa here with us, and unfortunately she didn't make it. And it's it's particularly kind of clear to me that we're having a conversation now um, about racism and prejudice without any Indigenous people on the, on the stage. Um, if you, you know, please, if you want to come up, add to the conversation, please do. That's, you know, There's even a spare open chair. invitation. Yeah. I think that's essential, especially, you know, when we talk about neoliberalism, like the core, one of the core ideas behind it is breaking down communities. It's about promoting the individual, promoting self-interest, greed, you know, competition, all of these ideas. Now, neoliberalism is a story. They're the most powerful things in humanities. It's a story that um, defines what we believe is possible, what we believe isn't possible. And when most people think about, you know, capitalism and think about our economic and political systems, they'll say that, maybe, you know, maybe it's shit, but there's no alternative. And that's the power of stories. And it's the power of neoliberalism. And, like, when we start to do things like this and we come together and we start to realise that, yes, we have our differences, but we also have our shared experiences uh, that unite us against... Uh, that tiny elite that uh, uh, you know gets their wealth and their profit and their power off the backs of most of us. That when we start to realise that, like that's the the first step in resisting. That's like an incredible act of resistance. And just to quickly touch back on on that idea of guilt, like I think again, you know, it's a core facet of neoliberalism. I think like the core emotion um, and the core state of being of, of, of neoliberalism is guilt. Like it's uh, it's ingrained in the DNA of that economic system. Like you've got a system that relies on perpetual growth. You've got a system where you know stagnation is anathema. And if you've got a, if you live in a system where that's the case, then you can never have enough. You can never be doing enough you can never like you can never be working hard enough and so we're constantly in a state of guilt all of us we haven't worked hard enough we haven't done xyz we don't have enough shit like all of this stuff is ingrained in the logic of that system so we're built to be guilty uh yeah um i want to talk to that guilt question as well i think what happens occasionally when we say to a straight white able-bodied man you've got privilege 
he thinks that we are saying, you need to feel guilty about who you are. And then we have a terrible conversation. That's not what check your privilege means. It, we're not aiming for anyone to feel guilty, and I don't think that anyone wants white people to feel guilty. I don't think anyone wants men to feel guilty. I don't think anyone wants able-bodied people to feel guilty. That's not what it's about. If you're cis I haven't mentioned transness not enough. Cis we're not asking cisgendered people to feel guilty. It is because if all you're going to do in response to us saying we are in pain, the system is structurally broken, is feel guilty on an individual <laughs> level, then we've achieved nothing. Yeah. What we need to do is counterbalance. Have you seen that amazing cartoon that shows the difference between equality and justice? That equality is giving everyone a single box and the tall person's still just as tall as they were and the next person up gets a little bit of help because they can now see over the fence, but the short person still only has a single box and they still can't see over the fence. That's not justice. Justice is giving the short person three boxes, the middle person two boxes, and the tall person one box or no boxes. Or pulling down and, the fence. Or pulling down the fence. Yeah. Thank you. But also, also they can then see, you know, and everyone can see. So the challenge is how do you acknowledge I am able to walk around a store without people, without the security people following me because they don't assume I'm going to steal anything because I'm white. How are you going to take that extra bit of mental health that you have through not being pursued and stopped by police at every moment? How are you going to take that little bit of extra energy that you have by not having to drag yourself through every day? What are you going to do with that? Are you going to use that energy to feel guilty or are you going to use that energy to act? Beautiful. That's beautiful. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I forgot to put one quote up, which is this fabulous woman, Flavia Zodan, which is my feminism will be intersectional or it will be bullshit. And I want to I give that to you because, you know, as a white passing feminist, I'm going to use my energy to back the women and my sisters who are dealing with more than me. Yay! <laughs> Did you have anything that's to add? Just that's, uh, that's just incredible. That resonates with me so much because what... And I'm sorry, I don't know your name. Tammy. But the... Um, sorry? Tammy. What Tammy just said, like, a light just shone <laughs> when you said that because... And, and when Roseanne chimed in because it's like when you, when you know someone's got your back, you feel like you can leap mountains. You feel like, I can do this. I can do progressive politics. I can change the person next to me. Or I can change one small conversation when you know that someone's got your back. And it, ha it might be as something as small as, you know, giving up your seat for them or for, you know, letting, letting someone speak. If you know somebody's there for you, that just gives you phenomenal power to do anything. Someone um, texted me a couple... Last story, I promise. Tim's checking his watch. Last story, I promise. Someone... I was, I was had, a, had a bit of a rough time, you know, in intersectional politics and was feeling a bit down. I thought, oh, God, I don't, actually don't know how much more I can give this month. And so there's one last hard conversation I have to have, and that was with my mum about, um, about the marriage equality survey. 
I grew up in an East Asian house, um, which was quite homophobic. My parents were quite homophobic growing up. And so I was going to have a conversation with her, hard conversation, take that deep breath, and tell her, don't vote. This has nothing to do with you. It's not to do with your views. I'm asking you not to vote. And so I called her up and I said, Mum, about the marriage equality survey, she said, I voted already. I was like, oh, OK. And she said, I voted yes. And I had tears in my eyes um, because the work of all the GBLTIQA advocates in years gone by is starting to bear through. And it, it was a shit thing. Let's not take it away from that. That survey is a shit thing. But all of that work came together and everyone who had their back, you know, sort of came together. She did add on the end of that, you know, a very conservative value. She said, you know they make wonderful parents. I was like, <laughs> whatever, one more in the box, I'll take that. Have someone's back. <laughs> Please join me in thanking this fantastic man.